You guys heard of um, the photo blog called Humans of New York? It's, uh, it was started in 2010 by a photographer, Brandon Stanton, and it developed, you know, it just blew up on social media. He I initially planned it as a website, but it took off on social media. Now, his initial thought when he started this thing was he was going to go and take 10,000 pictures of New Yorkers, of people in New York City, and plot them all over a map of a city. The project began to evolve and explode, though, when he actually started, instead of just seeing a picture of folks in the city, when he started having conversations with the subjects, and he would include small quotes and stories alongside the pictures. Well, once he started doing it, the thing took off in just months. In fact, it became so popular that when he accidentally updated his Facebook status with just the letter Q, he accidentally just hit a Q, it garnered 73 likes in a minute, just a Q. That's how popular the thing got. Today, it has nearly 18 million followers on Facebook alone. And the irony in the attraction behind the website is that in a city as crowded and congested as the city of New York is, right, eight and a half million people packed into New York City. P people literally at some points crammed up against one another chest to chest. Nobody seems to know anybody's story. Now, what the blog does through its photos and captions is help you understand and remember that the person that you're pushing past on the street, that you're competing for a cab with on the corner, is, breaking news, a human being with a human story. They're deserving of understanding and empathy, and it turns out they're a lot more like you in your humanity than perhaps you realized as you brushed by them. Today, we begin this new Easter series. It culminates on Good Friday. I can't tell you enough not to miss Good Friday. Uh, and then, of course, we'll celebrate the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday. But I really want to ask you to consider inviting somebody, a family or friend, to both of these. Good Friday, we're literally going to walk through the passion of Jesus from the beginning to the end, both in narrative form and music. It will be something you're not going to want to miss. Now, our Easter series is birthed out of the concepts of humans of New York. We're going to be looking at humans of Jerusalem. And for the same reason that this blog took off, humans of New York, the Easter story, I think, in all of its familiarity and closeness, it's reduced the very real humans in that story. Well, it depends on where you fall on the faith spectrum. For some, maybe for most, to historical fiction. For others, either spiritualized up saints right? Good guys. Every story is good guys. Or degenerate villains, just really bad guys. But that's not the story. Those are not the people. They were human beings, just like you and I, and they were living in the first century, presented with very real choices, very difficult dilemmas at the crux, it turns out, of human history. So their stories, I think you'll see over the next few weeks, are really our stories. They're human beings with human emotions. All of these real-life human beings were experiencing while these events were taking them on. Love, hate, greed, fear, loyalty, doubt. Their story is our story because at the core of the Easter story, it is both a God story and a human one too. What I hope that this will reveal to all of us this Easter is that these accounts are not just historically accurate, and that's super important, and I think you'll see they are, but that the story is actually a modern narrative. It's a story we still find ourselves part of today, and their choices, as I hope you'll see, 
remain, even this morning, our choices. In some sense, very little has changed. And so today, we're going to get started with, for us, would be one of the lesser known humans of Jerusalem. He wasn't at the time. He was probably the best known human in Jerusalem, a man named Joseph Caiaphas. Now, I spent a lot of time down a rabbit hole this week, um, and I hope you will find all of this as interesting as I did. I want to show you something that I think is pretty cool, right? Uh, remember, this is an ancient story, but it's a modern story. It's both historical and present day. So check this out. Beautiful picture of a family, right? You could pull this up on your phone right now. This is a current advertisement. Um, that is for a, uh, it's called Peace Forest Campground. It's in Jerusalem. The advertisement reads, I, I pulled it off my phone, a unique family camping site in the center of Jerusalem in the middle of a forest. This special activity is brought to you by the city of David. Go to sleep in the forest, wake up in the city, walking distance from the, I mean, it's just like something here, walking distance from the first station and from Yes Planet. A secure campsite awaits you in an enchanted forest. Take the opportunity to enjoy the quiet of nature and watch the stars at night. You don't get any more present day than this. What does this have to do with Easter and Caiaphas? Well, what the ad doesn't tell you is that in November of 1990, not very long ago, the construction of a portion of this park, during the process of creating a water park and widening the road, the workers discovered this burial cave. It was made up of four recesses, rectangular spaces about six feet deep and a foot and a half wide that were cut into the limestone bedrock. Now, this by itself in Jerusalem is not unusual. Many tombs have been found in the Kidron and Ben-Haman valleys in the old city, so it wasn't a, a surprise to find this one. But inside were found 12 what they call ossuaries, bone boxes. Six were scattered about, which indicated that the, 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 the grave had been robbed at some point in antiquity. But six were in their original places. And so the IA archaeologists were called to the site, and they identified this burial site as a Jewish burial cave from the second temple period in, in the history of Israel. That's around 500 B.C. to 70 A.D. All secular archaeologists. Now, at this time, burial for those who could afford a family tomb, what happened was the body would be laid out in a recessed cave in the wall and closed off. A year later, and it gets a little gory, but this is just what happened. A year later, after the flesh had decomposed, the family would return, open it up, and gather up the bones and deposit them in a cavern with earlier bones from previous um, generations. That's the explanation of the biblical term. You've seen it in the scriptures, quote, to be gathered up with his forefathers. That's where that comes from. And why, why it would be a custom for, for families to revisit the grave a year later. Later, it became customary to put those bones in a special limestone box and to write the name of the deceased on the outside. These bone boxes were known as ossuaries. And it was the discovery of this ossuary in that cave that literally rocked the archaeological world. Now, two things stood out about it. First, I mean, check it out. It is ridiculously ornate, befitting in that period somebody of some social, political, or religious significance. But more important was the Hebrew writing with a name nearly perfectly preserved on the side of the box, Joseph, son of Caiaphas in Hebrew. 
Now, if you know the Easter story, you might know that the gospel writers tell of a high priest in Jerusalem when Jesus was crucified who was named Caiaphas. In fact, all four of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, speak of the high priest's involvement in Jesus' crucifixion. But it's not just the Bible and the four independent gospel writers who affirm the existence of Caiaphas. Again, I want you to understand we're talking about real history here, okay? This is not fictional history. Roman historian Flavius Josephus confirms not only Caiaphas' role as chief priest in the temple in Jerusalem during the time of Jesus, but Flavius also says that his full name was Joseph, son of Caiaphas. And here is where the present meets the ancient. At this park in modern-day Jerusalem, you can go and quite literally over the top of an ancient Jewish burial tomb that contains, and just look this up, just about every archaeologist now believes this is true. They open, when they open the ossuary up, they found the bones of a 60-year-old man in there. This is the only archaeologically confirmed remains of any human being mentioned in all of the scripture. That's pretty cool right? The gospel accounts are very real history of very real human beings. Joseph, son of Caiaphas, was a very real man who lived at the crux of history and made very difficult choices. Now, who was he, all right? Well, Caiaphas was the Jewish high priest who served in Jerusalem from about 18 AD to 37 AD. According to this this historian Josephus, He was appointed to the position by Valerius Gratus, who was the Roman prefect who preceded Pontius Pilate. You you know Pontius Pilate, many of you, and his place in the story. He came to rule, was appointed by the guy before Pilate, right? Now, his tenure as high priest in Jerusalem was very long compared to contemporaries. They averaged only about four years in the job. In fact, Caiaphas was the longest-serving high priest in the first century. It was a precarious position. Rome, who was this occupying force in Jerusalem, routinely disposed of the Jewish high priest. He was actually deposed as a high priest, um, Caiaphas, shortly after Pontius Pilate was recalled to Rome in 36 CE. So a lot of people believe that they had, you know, a working relationship. Caiaphas came to the role, not necessarily because he deserved it, but because he married into a very political and religious dynasty family. He married the daughter of Annas, who himself had served as the high priest in Israel from from the year 6 to the year 15. He was the founder of a dynasty. This is like, you know, the Bushes, the Kennedys, and everybody else combined. That's what this family was. He was the founder of this dynasty that occupied the role of high priest from the year 6 to 65 AD. And it included, uh, beyond himself, Annas, five sons, and of course, one son-in-law, Caiaphas, and one grandson. These people were the people. Now, the high priest, okay, the high priest in Israel is the supreme official in the Jerusalem temple, which dominates the skyline. He's the mediator from a religious perspective, right? This is set up in the Old Testament. He was the mediator between the people and God. It was the high priest and only the high priest that was permitted to enter the holy of the holies in the temple and come into the actual presence of God one time a year. He was the only one that could make atonement for the priests and all of the people in the assembly. Now, under Roman rule, in addition to his religious duties, the high priest also exercised a range of political and administrative responsibilities on Rome's behalf. He collected all of the temple taxes. 
millions and millions and millions of dollars. He adjudicated legal matters. He, he attended to local issues. Caiaphas was also a member of one of the ruling Jewish sects called the Sadducees. The Sadducees were often wealthy men of high position in town, and they, they, they sought to appease the Roman rulers, so they were heavily involved in politics. They held the majority of seats in the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish high court, over which Caiaphas ruled for these 18 years that he was high priest. In terms of theology, the Sadducees, they had one kind of airmark. They denied the afterlife. The Sadducees did not believe that there was any existence of a spiritual world beyond the one we currently occupy. Now, because of those things, obviously, they were often at odds with Jesus because Jesus was often talking about humility and heaven and his own deity. In his role as high priest, he governed the Jewish people in Judea with all of the other priests and the aristocratic wealthy laymen. Traditionally, this governing council was known as that Sanhedrin. Now, if you've been around the church, you know there was one other group that was a big group of the day. They were called the Pharisees. The Pharisees were more focused on religious law and teaching in the local synagogues. Now, you're getting a picture of who this Caiaphas is, right? You and I don't know much about him, but then in the first century, everybody knew everything about him. After the Roman governor, Caiaphas was the most powerful, most influential man in all of the land. Came from the right family, this religious political dynasty. He had access and control over all of the money in Jerusalem and all of the people. He was the supreme political and religious leader. He was really successful. It appeared by the length of his reign, the people loved him. The Roman authorities seemed to like him too. That's not an easy edge for a, a high priest to walk, right? And he was doing so well until this Jewish carpenter comes along, shows up on the scene. You know, he's walking the edge of God and man and God and man really well, and then Jesus starts. And so, you know, when he was off in Galilee and Nazareth doing his thing, I'm sure the reports were getting back to Jerusalem and the temple about what he was doing, but it was fine because for a while he stayed over there. And then Easter happened. You know the Palm Story Sunday, Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem and everybody's throwing down their coats and waving their palms, right? It's Passover time in Jerusalem and tens of thousands are coming to gather to give their, to, to, to give their sacrifices. They're all gathering around Caiaphas' world and into town rides Jesus. And upon entering Jerusalem, that Passover, on reaching Jerusalem, he entered the temple courts. And he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And he would not allow anybody to carry merchandise through the temple of courts. As he taught them, he said, It is not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers, or as some translations say, a den of thieves. Now, catch this. Um, who is the you, right, that Jesus is speaking about? You have turned it into. It's Caiaphas and his buddies. Now, I want you to understand, this gets misunderstood, right? One time we were going to sell bagels in the lobby here, and I actually had somebody leave the church because they thought that this meant you can't sell things in the church, okay? This is not what this is about. What was happening here was Caiaphas and his buddies had permitted 
all of these vendors in. And what the vendors would do, and they were likely kicking money back to Caiaphas and his buddies, the vendors would overcharge the poor that could only afford a dove for the mandatory sacrifice. These guys would upcharge them, right? Because they had to buy it. And so they would take advantage of these people and kick the money back into the temple. This is why Jesus, who walks in and sees these people in a very real way, keeping people from God, this is why Jesus winds up going nuts on them at one point and calling them a brood of vipers destined for hell. Jesus can't stand it. He begins to cause, as you see, quite a ruckus. You've got to imagine Caiaphas is somewhere in the temple when he hears all of the commotion going on outside. What is it? Well, Matthew, in describing this moment, here's what Matthew says. Right after Jesus starts flipping over all the tables, the blind and the lame come to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests, who's Caiaphas? He's chief priest. When the chief priest, there was only one, but a lot of times his father, Annas, which apparently held sway forever, they would, they would also say Annas was the chief priest because he had served in that role. When the chief priests and the teachers of the law, those would be the Pharisees, saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting at the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were? Well, now you would think, right, that they were amazed at Jesus' teaching. They were blown away by these miracles. They were ecstatic at the healing of God's power being put on display in God's house. And they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? They were indignant. How indignant were they? Well, Mark says that it was at this point that the chief priests, that would be Caiaphas and likely Annas, and the teachers of the law, that'd be the Pharisees, they heard this and they began looking for a way to kill him. That's pretty indignant. I've been indignant. I've never looked for a way to kill somebody. Why are they so upset? Well, it goes on. They were looking for a way to kill him. Here's why. For they feared him. They looked for a way to kill him. Why were they so upset? Because they were worried about him. They feared him. I mean, who's afraid of sweet baby Jesus, right? I don't understand. Why were they afraid? Here's why they were afraid. This is super important. They were afraid because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. They were indignant because they were afraid. They were afraid because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. You see, when, when you're the chief priest and you're serving at the pleasure of Rome, it's not the teaching that was the problem. It's not even the blasphemy. That's the charge they trump up later. But you see here, they charge Jesus with blasphemy later. They're not really worried about blasphemy. They're worried about crowds. Crowds were a problem for Caiaphas. Crowds were a problem for Rome. Crowds are a problem for temple leaders. Crowds are a, pr a problem for occupying forces. And at this point, Jesus is drawing thousands and thousands and thousands of people, performing miracle after miracle on their sight. Caiaphas, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, none of them which really got along very well together. They're on different sides of almost every religious issue, every political issue. But there was one issue which brought everybody together. Remember how 9-11 brought us all together as a nation for one shining moment? In this piece of history, in, in Israel's history, there was one thing that brought everybody together. Jesus had to be stopped. And that's what they were thinking 
before the final straw happened. You know what event moved them from plotting to kill Jesus to killing Jesus? It wasn't his teaching. It wasn't that he was blasphemous. It was an act. Jesus had the audacity to raise his friend Lazarus from the dead. Many of you know the story, right? Lazarus has two sisters. Jesus was friends with all of them. Lazarus has been dead for a couple of days in his tomb. In fact, at one point they say, don't open that up. It's going to smell in there. And Jesus comes into town. He's aware of Lazarus' death. And he, he meets with his sisters. Jesus begins weeping himself because of the loss of his friend. And I mean, heck, the Sadducees, of which Caiaphas was one, right? Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. The Sadducees and Caiaphas, they don't even believe in the afterlife, let alone resurrection from the dead. And now they've got a dead guy that's alive walking around. This is a problem. But it didn't get, it's interesting, it didn't get Caiaphas to change the way he thought. It didn't get the Sanhedrin. It didn't get, it didn't get the Sadducees to think any differently. Even though they saw him. Even though they likely brought him in and asked his sisters what happened. Even though hundreds of people saw it, they would not change what they thought. Evidence meant nothing to them. And so John, who was an all eyewitness to all of this, John goes, therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary, that's Lazarus' sister, because they had heard about this, and had seen what Jesus did, now they'd seen Lazarus alive, they believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Here it is again. Then the chief priests, Caiaphas, and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin, now they're all getting together. This is like a, a, bad, a bad collection of, uh, of motley rulers, right? What are we accomplishing, they asked. See, this was, was a strategy meeting of people who didn't even like each other. And what were they accomplishing was their question, because prior to this, they had a shared strategy. Up to this point, the shared strategy was embarrass Jesus, get him to discredit himself. They kept, if you remember the stories, right, they would keep asking Jesus questions, hoping he would trip himself up and the crowds would walk away. That was the goal. But now the people had seen all these miracles. They'd seen the blind see, we just saw that, the lame walk, the dead raised. And even though perhaps Jesus was teaching was not in line with their present religious views, right, they changed their, their, their views in light of the miracles. The people did but the rulers didn't. That meeting goes on. Here is this man performing many signs, because it's about the miracles, not the teachings. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, which is pretty prophetic, right? Then it was hundreds and thousands. Today, 31% of the world believes in Jesus. About 2.3 billion people do. And then, and here's where the story gets relevant, okay? Here, here's where it gets personal. Here's where it gets modern and contemporary. At this point, they knew who Jesus was. Caiaphas had to have been going, okay, this guy is something special. I acknowledge all of the miracles, right? They had seen them. They, they themselves acknowledged that it happened. But they, were, they refused to change what it was they believed. Because if they did, they would have to rethink everything. And, and that was a big problem. But it wasn't the biggest problem. Here it is. Here was the biggest problem for them, and I think for you and I. It, 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 here's this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. 
I love this. You know why? Because it's just so, it's, it's so, I don't know, damning in one, one way and easy to relate to another. Notice they don't say, the, they're not worried about God's temple. They're not worried about God's nation. They're concerned about their temple and their nation, what they have, their position, their power, their authority, their finances, their prestige, their names. To embrace Jesus meant that they were going to have to let all of that go. They would have to change what it is they believed, which, by the way, that's what it means to repent, to change the, uh, the direction you're going, to change what it is that you believe. And, I mean, who wants to do that, right? That's really hard. I mean, my daddy taught me this. My daddy said there was no resurrection, and my granddaddy before him. And then they'd have to give up all of their position and their power and their authority and acknowledge that Jesus had that in their life and this world. Everything that was truly important to them, they'd have to let go. And despite the miracles, they'd seen them. Yeah. That's a little much. The cost was high. The ask was too great. See, isn't this where our story really meets their story? Do you see... We, we read Caiaphas and we just go, oh, evil guy, bad guy. See, they had no problem when Jesus was off in, in Nazareth and Galilee, when he was a player in their drama. The problem happened when Jesus wanted control of the whole damn thing. The problem came when giving in to Jesus, giving up to Jesus, was going to have a cost for them associated with it. Now, I don't know if anybody's ever just put it plainly to you, the church, unfortunately, hides this a lot. As you'll see in a minute, Jesus never did. But here's the truth. I don't know if I'm the first one that ever taught you this. Following Jesus is going to cost you something. If it hasn't and it doesn't, you're probably not really doing it. It's an ancient story, but it's a modern story, and it's my story. You want to know why? Because oftentimes, we, me, like they, a lot of times it's like, hmm, that's a little too much. I'm not sure I can go there. I mean, how many times have we known what to do to know what the right thing to do was, the right choice to make, but the price? And so now here comes Caiaphas. This meeting's actually taking place at Caiaphas's house, okay? So here comes Caiaphas. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. Could you imagine him saying this while everybody gather around? You guys are a bunch of morons. You know nothing at all. You do not realize, this, listen to this now, you do not realize that it is better for you, okay, who's he concerned about? It's better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. And I mean, it's just so cold, right? Guys, you're a bunch of idiots. You don't know what you're doing. Stop playing patty cake with this guy. Stop trying to appease him. Stop trying to trick him with your question. The answer is simple. Kill him. I mean, you have to remember, this is the chief priest, the high priest in all of Israel, right? This is a man that knows the commandment, thou shall not kill. But desperate times call for political expediency, in order to preserve what it is that we currently have, and we've got a good thing going here. I mean, has anybody counted the temple offerings lately? 
It would be better in this one instance to violate what it is we believe, to, to be an untrue to who it is that we say we are. It'd be better to do that. And look, 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 we'll just do it this one time, and, and we'll sacrifice a few sheep and ask God to forgive us, even though we're killing his son. I think he'll understand. Yeah, I mean, it would be, don't you guys think it would be better to do that than to give all of this up? Wouldn't it be better? And what John writes in the next text is just so fascinating. Because remember, John, John is writing, looking back on this some decades later. So he understands how this plays itself out, right? And so John now, looking back at this moment, with the benefit of all of his hindsight, here's what he says of Caiaphas. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. Caiaphas didn't realize what he was saying. He was actually in his planned disobedience, fulfilling the will of God. He just prophesied about the substitutionary death and atonement of Jesus on the cross. One man dies so that all might live. Here's what you need to remember. You cannot, I cannot, even on our worst days, with our worst choices, you cannot stop or thwart or prevent or slow down the work of God in this world. Our choices will not stop the hand of God. Our choices will only do one thing. Our personal choices will only save or condemn ourselves. Our choices will not mess up God's plan. They can only mess up our lives. That's the truth. God's plan will do fine without us. In fact, Caiaphas' little speech here, it actually became biblical prophecy. His move to kill Jesus not only fulfilled the will of God, but it became part of growing the movement of Jesus. In fact, John concludes, you can, you can see here, he goes, he goes, from that day on, they plotted to take his life. They thought they were in control, which is what we're all trying to grab, right? They thought they were in control, that they could take the life of Jesus. They could alter, in a sense, the will of God. They couldn't. They were not taking Jesus' life. Every time we get to Easter, I think it's important that I, I, I remind you all, the Romans did not kill Jesus. The Jews did not kill Jesus. Jesus willingly went to the cross to die for you. That's the truth of the gospel. I didn't say it. Jesus did. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The reason my father loves me is that I laid down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority, more than Caiaphas. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Caiaphas has no real authority over me. His choices, Caiaphas's choices, will impact him and his family and the generations that come. But it will not impact the will of God in this world. And look, some of you know how the story plays out, right? Most of you do. They have Jesus arrested. He's brought to Caiaphas' home for this fixed trial outside of Caiaphas' home now. This is when Peter denies him three times, right? And then Caiaphas rips his clothes because he's so outraged that Jesus is blaspheming, saying that he's God. We know that that's not why he's offended. He's just looking for a reason to be able to keep his, his stuff. 
And so he sends them off to Pontius Pilate, who has the same concerns about the crowd and, 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 and the insurrection that, that Caiaphas does, and Pontius Pilate has them crucified. And this plan worked perfectly for three days. I mean, wouldn't you love to have been in Caiaphas's uh, temple, you know, in, in, in some nice place inside there, uh, three days later when somebody came running in and said to Caiaphas, who thought the Jesus problem was now behind him? He's back. And the crowds, right, are growing. And the crowds are growing. And if you follow history, what's so fascinating about this is just a short time later, later Caiaphas was removed as the high priest. At around the exact same time that Pontius Pilate, who crucified Jesus, was recalled by Rome. And within a few decades, remember our, our nation and our temple, we have to do this to preserve our nation and our temple. Within a few decades, the temple was destroyed and the nation was disbanded. Israel would not be a nation again until right after World War II. All the things that Caiaphas feared and Jesus and Jesus' followers grew and grew and grew. I tell you Caiaphas' story because he was a human being, just like you, just like me, and he faced with, with the same choices that you and I have to face every day. This isn't an ancient story. This is my story. This is what happens to me on, like, Tuesdays. Will you and I follow Jesus, choose his way and not my way, even when it costs something, even when it means I have to change what I believe? I mean, I don't know what's like a core thing for you, for, 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 for Caiaphas, a core thing. His identity was wrapped up in there is no resurrection, right? He can't change that belief. What's yours wrapped up in? Well, I, I could never think like a liberal. Oh, those Republicans. See what I mean? What's, your, what's yours wrapped up in? What would you be unwilling to rethink it's really fascinating. Will you and I follow Jesus and choose his way and not my way, even when it costs something, right? Even when it means I might have to repent for where I've, where I've walked and what I've believed. Even when I have to give up something that's really meaningful. I mean, Jesus always understood that this was going to be the case. He always did. I know the church doesn't talk a lot about this a lot. This is another one of those Jesus, Jesus sayings. Nobody puts on their fridge. But here's what Luke said. Large crowds, there it is again, okay? Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, if anybody wants to come to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now look, Jesus did not mean you have to hate, literally mean you have to hate your family. What Jesus meant was that you can have nothing even really good things like your mom and your dad and your kids, you can have nothing more important in your life than him. Because if you do, when forced to choose, you will walk away from Jesus. You will make a politically expedient decision at home, at work. You'll do this just once and then you'll ask for forgiveness. He chooses his family, Jesus, because he knows what's most important to us. What, what wouldn't I do to protect my family, preserve my family? Jesus goes, look, if you put anything in that spot in your life, you're likely to do what Caiaphas then did. You will not thwart the will of God in your life, 
or, or, or in this world, but you will likely mess up your family with your choices. He would sum it up this way. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Friends, there is a cost to following Jesus. There is no doubt about that. But I have to tell you, there is a far greater cost for not following Jesus. I think the question that echoes from the grave of Caiaphas is what is it in your life that would be too much to ask? What would be too much to give up? Is it a belief? I mean, Caiaphas' whole belief system was getting shaken. Lazarus was raised right in front of him. The evidence was clear. I can't tell you how many people I've had debates with over evidence. Well, yes, I know, but I, I, I have a friend. We got into a discussion on something in the Scriptures, and you know, the Scriptures are fairly radical, and I kept trying to show them something about forgiveness and the radical grace of Jesus, and they kept going, well, that's fine, but I, I just can't believe it. I'm, I'm, I know you can't believe it. I'm, sh- I'm sharing you. It's right here. Yeah, I know, but I can't. Can't believe it. I mean, isn't there a little Caiaphas in all of us, right? What would be too much? You know, God makes claims on your personal stuff, right? He makes claims on your money, on your, on your finances. He says they're his, not yours, that you should honor him with those things first. God makes claims on your bodies, that they're not your own, that you were bought with a price. God makes claims on your sexuality, who you have sex, sex with and when you have it. I could go on and on. He makes claims on your marriage. He makes claims on your children. I mean, if you grew up in the church, you know the story of Easter. Caiaphas is just a bad guy, isn't he? Just an evil man until you realize he's just a real guy. Like I, I, I literally just showed you his grave. He was a real human being made of real, who made real choices which echo to today. Isn't there a little Caiaphas in all of us? And so the Easter question calls out from his grave, How much is too much to ask? How far is too far to go to choose to follow Jesus? Following him will always cost you something. Choosing not to will always cost you more. Now, one last thing. This is, I was in this rabbit trail for a while this week, and I I implore you to go on the journey yourself. It's super interesting. Um, One last thing. Uh, Not only is is the archaeologically identifiable, this the only archaeologically identifiable grave of a biblical figure, right? Secular archaeologists agree this was Caiaphas, right? The Caiaphas that, that, that was part of the, the story of Jesus' crucifixion. But there was something else about the grave which call out over time. I can, this is so wild. Buried in the tomb of Caiaphas in two different places were two Roman nails used in a crucifixion. Now, up to this point, up to today, in all of recorded history of mankind, we have only found, up until now, one real crucifixion nail. There had only been one ever discovered. In that tomb were two. Now, unbelievably, soon after their discovery, they were lost. It kind of reminds me of um, President Kennedy's brain. Are you aware that they lost President Kennedy's brain, right? Like, how could that happen? They lost these two nails. But now they have refound them, they've re-examined them and proved that they are indeed the nails that were in Caiaphas's grave. But as they also, and these are interesting, these crucifixion nails actually match the same Roman crucifixion nail that they had already found and discovered. And what's interesting about them is they're bent. They're bent because when you're crucifying somebody, the last thing you want them to do is pull their hands and feet off of them, so they bend them so you can't, you can't do that. So they refound these nails, and as they were they're making sure that they were the same ones that were found in Caiaphas's tomb, right? 
Here's what they discovered. These two nails, according to the study laid by Dr. Shimron, says, quote, we've discovered also fine slivers of wood uh, accreted within the iron oxide rust of the nails. It's well-preserved and entirely petrified. The wood is therefore ancient and not a chance or man-made fake attachment to the nails. Within the rust and sediment attached to the nails, we also identified and photographed a number of microscopic fragments of bone. For Dr. Shimron, a retired ge uh, geologist who works with Israel's geological survey, it's compelling evidence, quote, I believe that the scientific evidence that the nails were used to cru crucify somebody is indeed powerful. And so the question comes forth. Go down the rabbit hole this week. There were thousands and tens of thousands of crucifixions carried out by the Romans. But what is a Jewish high priest doing with two Roman crucifixion nails in his tomb? I mean, it, it has actually caused some to posit that since Caiaphas was a Jew and not a Roman, and he was only associated, as far as we know, with one crucifixion because he wasn't a Roman, <laughs> is it possible that these are the very nails used to crucify Jesus? Now, currently, there's two schools of thought. The predominant one is that the nails used in crucifixion were often considered to have powerful healing properties, and they were kept as amulets, like an ornament or that would give protection against evil or danger or disease. That's the predominant thought process. That's why you found them in a grave. But look, while that's likely the case, the Caiaphas story does not end with Jesus' crucifixion. It gets picked up by Luke, the first century historian, a little bit later when Peter and John were again brought before Annas and Caiaphas as high priests. Why? Because they would not shut up. They were out in the streets constantly talking about Jesus. Now remember, this is the same Peter and John who only weeks earlier were cowering behind locked doors. This is the same Peter who was hiding earlier outside of the house of Caiaphas while Jesus was be being put on trial. Suddenly, he and John are standing up before Caiaphas, bold as can be, looking at him going, and you crucified him, but we've seen him alive. And they actually said to Caiaphas and Ash, you can beat us, but we cannot stop talking about what it is we've seen. And so Caiaphas not only knew the claims of Jesus' resurrection, but of the changed lives of his followers, he saw the beginning of the church. And Luke writes, this is so interesting, in Acts chapter 6, two chapters later, so the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Could one of them have been Caiaphas? The Syrian church, Christian church, actually believed so. Did, a, did a, a remorseful Caiaphas keep the nails as like a remembrance for what he had done to the one that he now knew as Lord? I don't know. You know this whole Easter story, right? It's a historical one. There's a lot of proof. I've shown you some of it. It's an ancient one, but it's a modern one. I think the 1990 discovery of this tomb and these nails cry out a very modern question. Will you continue, and I, continue to use Jesus as an amulet, as some kind of protection against evil or, or some kind of ticket into the afterlife? Is he fine as long as he's off in the corner, as long as he's over there in Nazareth and Galilee and not causing any real problems, not disrupting anything in my current life? He's fine as long as he doesn't cost me anything. Or will you see Jesus as perhaps Caiaphas came to at least as many other priests did. John wrote it this way. At the same time, 
many even among the leaders believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. You are a human being of Mendham. He was a human being of Jerusalem. Will you this Easter change the way you think? Are you open to changing what you think? Are you open to repenting and believing and moving Jesus from the outskirts of your life to give him control over your life, even in those areas, in those places, with that stuff, in those relationships where it will cost you something? Will you this Easter worry less about human praise and more about praise from God? Those nails ask a haunting Easter question. This Easter, is Jesus Christ a good luck charm or is he your Lord? Caiaphas was a human being of Jerusalem and he had to answer that question. And this Easter, so do we. Let's stand and close the song.